Always a pleasure to be here. So um, what's going on? Um, a lot, as usual, as every week, except yeah. it, feels, it feels like we're closing a, a, a loop that's a year long because we saw Kissinger and Davos yet again. And remember, last year's Davos uh, took place a little later. So it was already after the uh, invasion, the Russian invasion. And then famously, a couple of realists, including Kissinger, came up with a very controversial view. I think Mersheimer has not really reflected on that view. He has not revised it. Kissinger, on the other hand, has. Yes. And it's important. It shows that realism still has some legs to go. Maybe not that 100-year-old, but uh, for everybody else, um, realism is that view of the world which takes the state as the basic unit of analysis. And I think uh, what we have learned in the last year that that's uh, valid, even if your overall approach is not realistic, if you if values matter to you and motivations matter to you and decision makers matter to you. But states matter. And this is something that where I worked at Davos uh, over two decades ago um, was undermined by the vibe of 1990s and liberalism. Remember, talks about who needs walls if we have um, uh, gates and windows because it was Microsoft time, right? Yeah, it's windows. Different windows than the ones we talk about today in Russia. Right, exactly, exactly. So well, let's, um, let's, step, let's step back a minute though and just not everybody who's here today was with us, you know, six or seven months ago. So Henry Kissinger, among others, were, I would say, quick to say, oh, just give Russia a bone. Give them, give them something and Putin will go away. Uh, mm-hmm. In other words, appeasers and very quickly appeasers. And so what you're saying is Kissinger this week is doing a pretty dramatic flip-flop. But it's not really his flip-flop. The situation flopped since then, right? Okay. So a realist a year ago would say, well, Ukraine anyway stands no chance. So mm-hmm. so who cares? Let's just face the, the music. And the music is, well, Russia will just eat it. That's it. Ukrainians, of course, have proven otherwise. And the reality is right now, indeed, and I think it's recognized on both sides, that Ukrainian army is de facto a member of NATO. Yeah. This is a membership, NATO membership minus Article 5. Because foreign troops are not sent into Ukraine, but everything else is. And therefore, it is a war of NATO against Russia. And it's being recognized not only by realists on this side of the divide, but by Russians themselves. So when when Putin replaces Surovikin with Gerasimov, which is what happened in the last couple of days, it's funny because when Surovikin was appointed, I think late summer, early fall, so many Russians say, oh, it's great, great name, Surovi, Surovi means harsh. You know, he's going to really kick ass. I laughed at it because that's true. In most Slav languages, Surovi means harsh. But it just happens that in Polish, it also means uncooked. And so <laughs> Surovikin basically came up pretty uncooked. What yeah. did he achieve other than pulling out from Kherson and killing civilians by bombing them in, in, in faraway cities? So, But the fact that Gerasimov, the, the chief of staff uh, of the Russian armed forces, is now responsible for the war, is telling me that we're moving from special operation to war by a realist bridge towards another Great Patriotic War. 
which is not great for us. It's not great for Russians. Um, I, I think I calculated this two weeks ago that looking at the numbers that we have from last year, Russia spent around 4% of GDP on defense. Now, tweaking it into a war economy fully under sanctions, many of which really kicked in since January 1st, um, no, maybe there's gonna be five, six, seven, 10. That's really bad news for Russians because we know how these economies function, how little is left for the rank and file, even those who do not have to send their sons to the to the front line. So, yeah. so both are correct. It is indeed now Ukraine is very heavily embedded in the the system with so much training going on in different countries for for Ukrainian reserves with so much equipment. Now finally tanks, Western tanks moving, although some still like you know German government is trying not to get thrown into this maybe not but Miss Lambrecht 2025 is Germany will send some hardware <laughs> it's always like this right uh but Miss Lambrecht is gone replaced we don't know yet what to expect yeah, from the new yeah. Ministry of Defense the first male on this, in this position I think in 10 years so the three um ladies who who, who are in uh, heads of the of the department over Bundeswehr uh, so we'll see what happens but in the meantime uh Polish president in Ukraine, before he went to Davos, snookered Germans by offering leopard tanks. Now, yes. Poland may operate leopard tanks, but they're made in Germany. And as we know and explained many times on this show, it's not the operator that determines where these platforms can be used. And in case of war, is actually the producer. So Germans yes. have to give the green light, which is actually, I didn't expect that much poker from the Poles, but actually they, they played it pretty well. And, put Mr. Schultz and everybody with their backs to the wall to kind of live up to 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 their Zeiten wenn der Sprache. Um, and let's see how that goes, right? But it seems like there are serious commitments to help Ukraine towards the end of winter, beginning of spring, spring offensive, kind of offensive with some heavy weaponry. So yes, do you want to do do you want to say anything about the role of the Swiss in making weapons available to Ukraine? Because they're also a dominant controlling factor. Yeah, well, we we talked about it before. It's a it's a legal problem in case of Switzerland. Switzerland produces a lot of munitions, mm -hmm. munitions including for German uh, German platforms uh, such as tanks and howitzers. And by law, Swiss-made ammunition cannot be used in any active war theater, uh, which makes no sense whatsoever if Germans want to send their platforms to, right. to Ukraine. Uh, that's not easy to, to change. And I think the upshot of that will be that some of the Swiss munition producers will simply lose their market in Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's that's probably what's going to happen. But it's unlikely that the law will uh, will change. I, I want to just jump into something else. Remember, before you do, I, I want to just I want to disagree with you about something. OK. Uh, and this is this is uh, an act of courage on my part, by the way. I don't know that I've ever disagreed with you. I might have had a, uh, a, uh, a um, I might have had another opinion to share, but on this one I disagree with you. You may be mm -hmm. technically right, but when I look at the whole realist appeaser Kissinger phenomena, where I disagree with you, I think, um, is that it seems to me that a guy like Zelensky's, not Zelensky, I'm sorry, a guy like Kissinger's job is to be able to read tea leaves. Mm. And he didn't read the tea leaves. So, you know, you were saying the circumstances changed, but the circumstances couldn't have changed if we just listened to Henry Kissinger. 
And for that, I think he was wrong. I think he, uh, I, I'm going to leave it there. I think he was wrong. And I think this flip-flop is, you know, whether he says it this way or not, is an acknowledgement that, you know what? He read the wrong tea leaves or he read them wrong. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. This is not an argument between us. I think a year ago, realists were wrong. Mersheimer, first of them. And I think there is a very interesting recording you can find on YouTube when he debates with uh, McFall and Sikorsky in Toronto. Yeah. Um, he's completely grilled there. I mean, it's just trashed. I mean, all these yeah. all these ideas of you know buffer zones and spheres of influence and so on. You can be realist if your ancestors have not been sent to Siberia. Okay. And I speak as someone whose great uncle was killed in cutting by the Soviets and whose grandfather was killed in Auschwitz by the Nazis. So I have a different attitude to me. This is not an abstract situation that I'm watching over across yeah. the Atlantic, like Mr. Mersheimer, and thinking like, oh, what is the geometry of that geography of that topography? Well, it tells me X. Right. It's not like this. There are real humans behind this. And that's why I think I understand Ukrainians very well. And they were right. Yeah. And realists were wrong. Yeah. All right. Now you can move on. Thank you for humor. All right. Let's, let's move on then. And um, I'm going to go back to something that I used, the metaphor I used at the very beginning of this show almost a year ago. Remember Matroshkas? I do. All right. So this was the Ukraine-Russia war. This was... The European theater war involving everybody else there, the Baltics, Finland, Sweden, Poland, Germany, and so on. But in fact, there's a lot more than that. This is a conflict between us and them. And who are them? Well, them are Russia, China, Iran, uh, North Korea, and a couple of others. And who's on our side? Well, we are on our side a bunch of our allies in Asia and Europe, and very few others, very few others. And so when I use these matroshkas, what I meant is that the ripples from Putin's decision to invade Ukraine were sent all around the world, not only as far as the front line in Ukraine, not only as far as the Dnipro where 12 people were murdered in a missile attack the other day. Um, no, much further. And the best example from this this week comes from South Korea. South Korean president, for the second time since the beginning of the war, of, of the year, of the calendar year, 2023, mentioned that South Korea is in a position and should be developing nuclear weapon program. Now, South Korea is a signatory of NPT, Non-Proliferation Treaty, from 1970, and a, and a good signatory. Basically, told the line, why? Because U.S. promises to its allies, such as South Korea, a nuclear umbrella. Now, in the meantime, however, our nuclear capacity, U.S. capacity, has not grown, whereas North Korean capacity has grown, and China is promising to grow their nuclear capacity. Not to mention contacts with Russia, all the, about cutoff. South Korea uh, participated, has participated in all the sanction packages against Russia since the beginning of the war. So it's on the list of, of enemy countries in Moscow, uh, yeah. alongside Japan, Taiwan, and Singapore in Asia. So it's really interesting because U.S. is very nervous about that when its allies um, try to obtain nuclear, military nuclear capacity and develop that capacity. Um, that's why NPT was signed with USSR and UK and US and with all other members 
uh, signing later. There are very few countries which are not members of NPT. North Korea isn't. Pakistan and India are not, which is interesting because um, this is one of the reasons why India is always so thankful to Russia. Since 1998, officially, India has nuclear weapons against NPT, and Russia has covered India at the Security Council. So this, as well as the way in which Russia always voted in favor of India over the Kashmir issue, is one of the reasons why India is very careful about criticizing Russia in this war. One of many. And we never had a chance really to go deeply into India, but maybe one day. Um, <laughs> there is there are two other members, two other non-members of NPT. One is South Sudan, which is maybe not so relevant, and one is Israel. And here, of course, US has always covered for Israel at the Security Council, right? So so the countries on the other side of the divide and a lot of countries of the global south that support, say, the Palestinian cause, they pull out this and say, hey, hypocritical US, you're supporting Israel. Why are you so upset about, say, India or something? But right now, since what has changed since the beginning of the war, the invasion, Russian invasion in Ukraine, is that South Koreans themselves, the population of South Korea, supports a home ground nuclear program for military purposes. Mm. So that was about 40 odd percent over a year ago, and it's now 55 and a half percent of South Koreans. So it's more than Japanese. Remember Shinzo Abe shortly before dying, for being assassinated, sorry. Uh, he also raised that issue and got a lot of clapping from India, at least. Well, the Japanese public is not quite there yet. The South Korean public is. It would take about two years for South Korea to develop it fully. And the, the, the pressure the U.S. can exert on, on South Korea, on the one hand, is that South Korea is trying to develop its civilian nuclear program. So normally there will be a sanctions against the country that develops nuclear weapons, just like there are sanctions against uh, North Korea. Um, who knows, maybe Russia would still provide them with something. You know, Rosatom uh, is, a, is a major uh, producer, uh, converter and enricher of, of uranium. So that's, that's possible. It's a risk here of losing an ally if you pressure them too much. You have to actually offer something in exchange. And what U.S. is offering is deployment of strategic assets, whatever that means, or in other words, extended deterrence. And why are South Koreans nervous about it? Because they see extended deterrence as something that we're doing in Ukraine. That is, we're helping Ukraine, but we're not stepping up with our boots directly to defend yeah. Ukraine. And so South Koreans read it, we're not doing this, we the West are not doing this because Russia is nuclear. Mm -hmm. And just look around South Korea's neighborhood. North Korea is nuclear, Russia is nuclear, and China is nuclear. Mm -hmm. And with all the three, the relations are dismal right now. The, yeah. the, China was an, an exception there, but in the last couple of years, one country that has become very strongly anti-Beijing is South Korea, South Korean public, for a number of, of reasons uh, really attributable to China's, China's uh, attitude. So this is interesting. The ripples are interesting and very disturbing. Because, of course, if Korea gets it, Japan will get it, Taiwan will get it. Right. Uh, many other countries are trying uh, or might, you know, if Erdogan wins his re-election in June or he's trying to accelerate this to April, interestingly enough, yeah. um, then maybe Turkey. Uh, we will be living in a very, very, very different world uh, if we ever celebrate the third anniversary of this show. So it's a... It's it's very it's a very um, disturbing way in which this um, genie got out of the bottle, um, as we discussed before. I want to ask you a question 
and I mm. don't think we're going to dive into this today, but maybe someday we will be able to. Um, a few months ago, when Putin floated the idea of using nukes, there was a lot of discussion about how these nukes are different. They're tactical. Mm. They're more, and, and I'm going to confess, I don't have a great understanding of this, but my understanding was these were more like traditional bombs powered as nukes versus the kind of nukes where you have a mushroom cloud and you take out the kind of uh, infrastructure and people that we saw in Japan. It, it, first of all, and, and let's keep this brief because it really wasn't on our agenda for today, but is there a new type of nuke and if that, that really makes a significant difference in what it means to use nukes? And if so, should the world be discussing a new type of treaty beyond what exists today? It's not in the interest of the current um, nuclear powers to renegotiate that. Mm -hmm. The truth is, uh, this is uh, this is a min minor minor difference, right? So tactical nukes below 50 kilotons, they still have a mushroom cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, they're just smaller and they can be used uh, in tactical form. And for that, Russia has a lot more yeah. of these missiles and platforms. And what NATO has is only attached to bombers, which are placed in Germany and we are in inferiority. So nobody on the other side will be willing to actually sign any treaty right now for technical, mm -hmm. tactical weapons. I, I would assume that since those threats appeared, uh, some action has been taken um, by, by Pentagon. But unfortunately, some action has probably been taken also by China, which yeah. is uh, against accelerating that um, calendar because they're not ready for a nuclear standoff in, in, in the Pacific. They're ready for a conventional standoff and how that evolves, that's another story. Yeah, all right. So where do you wanna go now? Oh yeah, you asked me about corruption last time, corruption and uh, authoritarian regimes. And so I have something interesting to share here. I think there's been a lot of, a lot of misconception about how corruption functions and probably for us in Western world is because we're not often really confronted with that. So we see all oh, this corrupt country, poor countries are corrupt or dictatorships are corrupt and tyrannies are corrupt. There's a lot of research about it. There's a lot of research that shows what are the tendencies. There's comparing different regimes and different, different economies and which are more corrupt than others. We know, for example, that more personalized um, tyrannies are more corrupt than those that are run by a single party, so a large organization or by the military. Hence, sometimes the military coups that are so frequent, say, in West Africa are often hailed as, you know, Finally, you know, there's going to be less corruption for a moment uh, than there was in the previous uh, previous regime. Uh, states that spend very little on public services tend to be more corrupt than those that spend a lot. Um, those uh, where you have new power, new clique coming to to uh, the trough, uh, they tend to kind of line their pockets faster. We discussed it last week when we mentioned uh, Partido Trabalhadores in, in Brazil. Um, in many other cases like this, whereas the old regimes, you know, they stuffed themselves already, right? So there is a certain system of, of uh, incentives for their people, but it's not this sudden kind of big bomb. Let's, 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 let's get now uh, our due. Um, also, when there is no ideology, there tends to be more um, corruption when there is an ideological loyalty 
You know, if I believe that I'm going to die for the great Russia on the Ukrainian front, I'm not going to uh, steal from the Russian army. I may be stealing from Ukrainian people, but that's for the glory of my nation, right? Yeah, and that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. And then, of course, there is a question of extended bureaucracy. When there is a large extended bureaucracy, it's probably tolerated a little more for residual efficiency and also for protection of the elite that sits on top mm -hmm. of that. Whereas when there is little public service, it's full of chokeholds, right? And you have to go through them and, of course, grease the, the palms. But that's all of this research is just like lists. And I found something really interesting. There is a Singaporean author. Her name is Yuan Yuan And she, uh, she actually, I think, uh, is in Princeton right now. And she wrote a book called Gilded Age about China. And she, she um, dissected corruption in an authoritarian regime mostly into four different categories. And thinking about my own experience in different parts of the world, I thought this is actually quite apt. This is actually quite, quite well crafted. So there are two, two categories, two sets of categories, and that gives us four different baskets. Uh, one category is that there is a theft, or the other one, there's some kind of a transaction. The theft is simply someone takes away from you. In another case, someone takes away from so you so that you can get something else. So there is there is this distinction. And the second st distinction is between something minor, petty, local, and something grand, a grand scheme at yes. the at the at the state level. And so let me give you some examples. Let's start with theft, which is petty, petty theft. Um, a great example is Thailand. So once I'm with my friend, my Thai friend in Thailand, and um, you know, we're driving in Bangkok and she turned right on a on a on, on an intersection and here's a traffic policeman stopping us, right? Stopping us and taking her papers because of course that's illegal. It's illegal to turn here. And so I didn't get into whether it was illegal or not. But you know, she played all her games, you know, little really nice Asian package. So first like, no, no, please, no, of course. Then she started to cry then the bag, whatever. And then finally, there was, I don't know how many hundred baht that went into her papers, car papers, mm -hmm. handed over through the door. He took what was inside, gave us back, and then we could drive, right? This is, this mm -hmm. is petty theft. Another example I give you in Democratic Republic of Congo. So um, not far away from Kinshasa, the capital, and the Congo River, the famous river, you know, from, I know, Joseph Conrad's <laughs> um, uh, novels. You can actually see across a very large uh, river, very, very, very wide estuary there, um, parts of Brazzaville, which is another country, Congo Brazzaville. Mm -hmm. And so I had never been to Brazzaville. I wasn't planning to go. There are no bridges anyway. Uh, it's very, very like white water uh, environment, big boulders and so on. I'm going to just take a picture of this. I'm going to take a picture of Congo Brazzaville. You know, I've been here. I've been gone. <laughs> Immediately, here it is, we're just some jungle boulders. There is a military guy coming up with his big rifle. It's like, ah, 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 <laughs> forbidden, <laughs> forbidden to take a picture. Here it is. Okay, uh, 50 euro, right? All right, 50 euro. Was, that, was that a fee or a penalty? Or does it matter? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It ended up in his pocket. I mean, who's gonna, do, do you expect him to go to, you know, local Congolese IRS say, Oh, this is this is for the uh, uh, for the state. This is for the province, and this is for the city. <laughs> but, but I mean, did he explain it as a fee, or was it a bribe? Yeah, a, he explained sufficiently that if I don't pay, I have to I have to come with him. You know, okay. which I didn't, which All I right. didn't. Think. 
50 euro actually goes very far. So if someone wants to travel West Africa, once I was, I couldn't, I couldn't actually leave the from uh, Cote d'Ivoire into Mali, and uh, there was something wrong about my Mali visa numbers, and got arrested. And as long as it's a you know top officer, that's not fun. But if you if they leave you with some you know sergeant or or, or below that, um, you can always talk about soccer, and you should always have your 50 euro in your pocket. And then you do you slide it between the pages of your passport or some other? Yeah, you, yeah, you'll do something like this, but make sure you find a taxi really quickly. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's another, for example, in Tibet once, uh, we wanted, we were traveling in those places that are allowed for foreigners to travel. Well, not allowed anymore, but they used to be allowed. Yeah. And uh, there was one more valley that I wanted to discover with monasteries. And it turns out you need a permit from a Chinese police, you know, the mm. occupied police. Mm. And so here it is, $800. Eight hundred dollars wow. to cross from one valley to another. I thought I'm not going to finance Chinese police, and of course I, I gave up. Mm -hmm. So this is this is petty theft, right? This yes. is this is what it is. Grand theft is something very different. Grand theft is, um, for example, something like Najib Razak in Malaysia. So he um, redirected billions of dollars that were going into the national sovereign fund into his own accounts. So back in the day when there was Marcos and you know. Abacha in Nigeria and so on that usually landed in Swiss banks. That doesn't happen really anymore. Right. Who's next? Panama, maybe, <laughs> you know, something like that, right? So uh, it's too bad because actually private uh, banks in Switzerland had a very, very good service, very good service. They would take your children to, you know, ski and in San Moritz. And, Are you speaking from experience? I, I know a lot of people who worked in those uh, private banks, yes. So very, you know, super well dressed. I mean, never putting on a shirt like this. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very large drain of of, of wealth, use of public funds. Of course, the ill-gotten gains they are stolen from from the public. It's strange what happened in Malaysia. It happens often in countries that um, have uh, resource wealth, uh, especially oil and gas. Oil and gas because oil and gas is faster to extract than say minerals, right? You can you can actually uh, build a well, sink a well, and within 18 months, two years, there's there's production coming. If you want to build a nickel mine, it's gonna take you like a laterite nickel. That's easier to sell on you know a, a more liquid in the marketplace. Yeah, is more liquid in the marketplace, larger market, but especially is those those timelines, they don't fit dictators yeah. <laughs> corrupt no. people's i'm not gonna wait 15 years we're not, this, not gonna live that long until this copper mine actually produces yeah the right so so that's that's why oil and gas are really good at that so this is petty theft and grand theft now the other the transactional I, before you move on hmm. russia is rich in oil and gas hmm. are the oligarchs are putin's oligarchs fit into that grand larceny scheme Okay. Clearly, clearly, that's uh, Russia's has a lot of grand theft historically, but also um, speed money. And I'm going to talk about speed money now. What is what is speed money? Here, transaction comes into play. So, if you want to do business in Russia, business meaning you want to go and generate some wealth. You're going to bring technology. Yeah. You're going to hire local people. You're going to you, you're going to bring capital, of course, and you expect returns. So, you actually at the end of the day, you're going to earn something from it. Yes. Uh, in in the Russian case, there's going to be a lot of hands to grease on the way to get there. But yes. Russia is not the only one. Um, I had an experience, for example, once in India, 
uh, with an investment project, uh, working with Australian backing, very helpful. Austrade, they, you know, they kind of help Australian companies uh, function in different parts of the world with the government set up and, and so on. And we collected all different permits that we needed for to, to, to establish operations there. You know how many permits there were to start operating an exploration project? 112. But you're not that far, but 70. Okay. 70 permits. Well, obviously, nobody in his sane mind will be going through 70 permits, right? So speed money is necessary here. Ah. Otherwise, you're going to spend years and years and years. And in your cash flow terms, net present value yeah. terms of the future gain, you're going to lose so much. So you better spend a little more right now. Of course. So this is, this is a little bit like the VIP line at Disney World. Oh, is it? Okay, never been. No, I mean, I'm speculating, but I mean, you know, you can stand in line at Disney World or you can pay 10 times more and well, go to the front of the line. Okay, I'm, well, I didn't know. So next time you're invited. <laughs> I've never okay. been either, but uh, right. okay. And, and I do also want to mention that, you know, this, this exists domestically as well. Now, hmm. I don't know if it's still true in New York today, but 20 years ago, if you were part of a major construction project, you were constant, you know, one of your jobs as the foreman of the job was to have a lot of cash in your pocket because you were right. constantly paying people off so that you could continue to build your project. Mm -hmm. That might still exist in specific mm -hmm. sectors. There's, there's a lot of when, but there it's, I would call it more access money than speed money. Okay. And access money is this, this, this fourth category, which really is okay. the one that matters where you have access to government contracts when you have access mm -hmm. to to land right when there is influence peddling um you know helping selected businesses to make money so yeah. that that's like injection of steroids actually it's actually can be economically uh conducive to growth believe it or not if you attract yeah. a lot of people you take something on the side but you attract love investment into your province in china for example when this system thrives then access money is not um it's long term of course it has a lot of uh, side effects speculation excessive right. debt and so on but in terms of grow numbers for which you are uh rewarded as a chinese communist official um they're gonna look good they're gonna yeah. look good in china it's classical because in china only the state owns land yeah. and state belongs to the communist party and so there are three types of allocations land allocations rural industrial and urban and they are leased from the state. So rural is leased for 30 years, industrial and uh, urban are leased for 60 years. So what happens if you're a governor of, a, of an area or you know, a communist official of an area and a construction guy is coming to you and says, well, we'd like to, to build something, but there's, there's rural land, so in rural we cannot build. Of course, that communist official will just sign a paper transferring that lease from, say, uh, rural to urban. Now, the actuarial value, the value of that just goes through the roof immediately. So it's good for his books, number one. And number two, under the table, there's some greasing here to choose to, to offer it to this real estate developer, not another one, right? So that, that's how it, how it works. But you're right about looking closer to home because you can make an argument that Citizen United decision in 2010 in this country is sort of solidifies quasi legality or even even legality of access money corruption is that yeah. large corporations can without yeah. any limits pay uh 
for um, political campaigns. That is, instead of one man, one vote, one man, one woman, one whatever gender vote, we have one dollar, one vote, right? Yeah. So two dollars more votes, more, more, more power. So that is not only in China or Southeast Asia, where this is big, or Brazil, or whatever. It actually happens here. So it's, it, it often has long-term, very distorting um, uh, effects because real entrepreneurs who are real people who could build something often feel clogged in this system and will move to yeah. speculation or you know, to some other uh, other activity that's not necessarily uh, fostering for them modernization. So in a way, uh, you can say that with the economic development, there is a move from those theft styles, thuggery, which is very common in unfree societies with poor level of public service. And as, as the nations develop and get richer, there's more of this access, transactional corruption. And transactional corruption may have been perfected by dictatorships such as China, but they're not unique to yeah. those systems. Right, right. Uh, very interesting. And maybe someday we'll be able to continue that conversation as well. Someday. Um, I guess we should acknowledge that um, Putin has outlasted us, <laughs> at least on the Beams platform. <laughs> I'm assuming, well, everyone who's watching may not know, but the Beams platform on which we're doing this show uh, is closing tomorrow night, Thursday night. Uh, so first of all, there will be a show tomorrow at 11 a.m. at the same time with Ilya Ponomarev. That show I will just announce, and we'll have more details tomorrow, will continue in a new home. And Thomas, do you want to talk about whether there is a future of this show or not? Well, there is a future. Um, I see already an input from Anna. Maybe there will be a future. Maybe not immediately next week or the week after, but we'll definitely try to come back. Uh, Tyrannies are all... They're all around us. <laughs> they have a huge impact on how we're living. Let's remember that. Let's remember that we should preserve our freedom of speech. It's not because of unfreedom of speech that this platform is closing. There are some other reasons, but we wouldn't like to find ourselves in a world where that would close because someone doesn't like what we say. Right? Yeah. But we should not underestimate the fact that where the tyrannies are really good at is affecting our passive freedom of speech. That is what we hear what we don't hear, what we are allowed to listen, and what we listen to most of the time. And unfortunately, social media facilitate that influence from far away from here, where they're really good at deepening all the cleavages, regardless, you know, between different types of, say, skin pigmentation, different types of gender orientation, different types of attitude towards vaccine or this vaccine or that vaccine, and so on. So that that's that's really happening so before before we um come slowly to a close two things first i'd like to recommend some reading before you move on i just want to yeah. so i'm not sure how to say the name slammer uh very good question uh so first of all we as you know we i originally but lucas has been sending you emails after every show and so we will email you with additional information uh, and Anna has made a really good point here. She's going to continue with the Beam Stop Putin Now Facebook page. Um, I think there may be some collaboration with her and the Facebook page in the future of the show. I want to make clear 
what Thomas just said, there will not be a show for the next two weeks. We might have been having a hiatus those next two weeks anyway. So it's not necessarily a coincidence. But one of the ways you can get information will be on the Facebook page. We'll also email you. Anna, of course, she's the queen of sharing. Please follow, post, and share that Facebook page. And, um, and yes, yeah, so we will keep you posted. Uh, I also want to, to encourage you to join us tomorrow on the show with Ilya Ponomarev because we'll have more information about the future of that show as well. Uh, so I just, I just wanted to make sure that was clear, Thomas. And now, mm -hmm. go ahead. Mm -hmm. All right. So a couple, couple of recommendations while you have two weeks <laughs> to fill in. <laughs> Uh, so here are a couple couple of um, good readings, uh, which I recommend. First, we spoke a lot about Eastern Europe here. So I strongly recommend Richard Pipes, Richard Pipes, Russian conservatism and its critics. They're one of many books that Richard Pipes wrote. Well, so first, who was Richard Pipes? Was because he passed away in 2018. He was Ronald Reagan's um, uh, advisor on Eastern Europe. Uh, born in Cheshire, which is a Polish city on the border between Poland and Czech Republic. Actually, it's a twin city on both sides of the border uh, of Jewish origin uh, sometime before Second World War and actually lived the uh, Nazi invasion of Warsaw in Warsaw. Apparently, he briefly had, saw Hitler when Hitler had a major pageant, military pageant after, after beating the um, Polish army in October. And then they fled. Poland, and he found himself in in uh, in the U.S. specializing, strangely, not in Germany but in Russia, and became a foremost scholar during Cold War about uh, Russia and Soviet Union. But this book, interestingly enough, where I find it's very um, relevant, is because it deals with the history of Russian conservatism before the Soviet times. So, in the 19th century, much history of Russian political thought, and this is really viable today. I mean, he didn't live long enough to see the second Ukrainian-Russian war, but if, if you want to understand Russian thinking, there's a lot here that's, that's useful. Um, most other books really deal with anarchist side of things or the kind of the run-up to the communist uh, yeah. eruption in the, in the Leninist eruption in the 20th century. This goes more on the traditionalist conservative side and um, the huge impact that it still has in the mindset of, of many Russians. So that's the first position. The second Before one, you move on, Thomas, um, I, I want to introduce a feature that you may not know you have as audience members, and that is at the bottom of your screen, the first button says snap. I've never used it, but my understanding is it will enable you to take a screenshot. So Thomas, if you would hold the book up again, Everybody that's interested, hit that button and take a screenshot. I'm going to do the same thing of the book so that you now have a screenshot of it. Uh, and, and I encourage you to do the same thing with the next two books. Okay. So the next one may be a little more difficult to find by uh, Hung Chen Chao, The History of Taiwan. Hmm. So this is this is this and uh, the beautiful map behind. We spoke a lot about China and Taiwan here. Um, why is this interesting? Actually, this uh, this writer himself has uh, Chinese origin rather than Taiwanese origin. But if you go through it, you realize that identity of people can be very, very complex. Of course, in Taiwanese case, um, there was a period of Portuguese overlordship, Spanish, Dutch, Manchu, 
There were Hakka people, the gypsies of mainland Asia who came. There are the Fukinese people. There, of course, there was Japanese period, and then finally the Taiwanese period uh, of uh, Taiwanese sovereignty since uh, the Second World War as a, as a separate entity, briefly in 19th century as well. Um, this is interesting because we underestimate this. When we think in grand terms, like Mr. Mersheimer, <laughs> we think in terms of Russia, China, United States. But in fact, without the identities of Ukrainians, of the Baltics, of the Finns, of the Poles, of the Taiwanese, of the Koreans, um, there wouldn't be any issue. There wouldn't be there wouldn't be nothing. If there was only those three large entities, there would be probably no conflict whatsoever, just spheres of influence. But the problem is those people have different identities, separate identities. And Taiwan is not unique. Think about Malta, tiny speck in the Mediterranean, just like Taiwan historically, first Phoenician, then Carthagine, Carthage, then uh, Roman, then Arab, then uh, Norman, then Knights of St. John, the Order of St. John, which is actually still exists in one, one uh, building in Rome, so a state without territory, a unique uh, entity in the world. Um, then the French, Napoleonic French, then the British. Out of this what? A unique place, Malta, right? When people speak a Semitic language, but what you see around is Catholic cathedrals. So it's, it's, it's really refreshing to look at those smaller entities. And the third one. Hold on, before you go on, hold yeah. the book up again. Everybody again. wants to see it and snap it. Gotcha. Hold it there for a sec and make sure we can see the author as well. There you go. I took my snap. Okay. Did everybody get that? And by the way, I realized I will have Thomas send me the names and authors of these books. And uh, since we have your emails, we will send you within the next couple of days an email with all all of these books and a link to Amazon. So okay. we'll help you. I, I'm thrilled that you're as interested as you are and we'll make it as easy as we can for you to get these books and read. Them. Okay, the third one is, um, I'm gonna surprise a lot of you because it's unlike the other two, it's a classic. Hmm. All right, it's a classic. It actually comes in, you know, two. English. Uh, uh, in English, it's called uh, Democracy in America, right? De la Democracia en Amérique. Right. So, um, Tocqueville, 1930-31, his famous trip through the United States where he actually observes democracy, which they didn't have in Europe at that time, right? So, they tried hard to do something in the late uh, 18th century. It didn't quite work yeah. that way. Um, uh, it's, it's interesting in which year he went because 1830, it's also a year when in Europe you have uh, Belgian revolution. Belgium becomes a separate country, right? The southern part of the United Kingdom of the Netherlands. In Switzerland, we have the um, Liberale Erneuerung. So regeneration after a period of, you know, going back to conservative sort of, um, you know, post uh, Vienna Congress uh, ruled the Ancien Regime. Suddenly you have Volksversammlungen. So the, the public uh, gatherings to um, to to promote liberal uh, reforms. We have a Polish uprising against Russia in 1830. We have the July Revolution in France, the Second Revolution, the Trois Glorieuses, so on. And so there are a lot of things happening. And in the meantime, he goes to America and 
um, writes about things which are still really, really valid. So just like Richard Pipe's uh, book, Tocqueville, mm -hmm. is still valid, especially if you're concerned that between the tyrannies out there and our supposed total freedom, there are a lot of countries in the middle that are over the last couple of years, at least until COVID started looking the other way, looking, oh, what a great success, what a great economic success. Maybe we don't need that freedom anymore. And then there are some people who picked up on this in our societies as well, unfortunately. So we have to, we have to be very careful and we have to protect ourselves against that. So I'm gonna close with a warning and the warning will sound with, will start with a little sound file. I'll explain to you, don't get scared. <laughs> finishing with that because I think we underestimate how quickly history can change I thought we learned that 24th of October last year but it's worth remembering how quickly it can change for much worse this record this Cambodian rocks comes with another version here these are CDs younger people don't know what CDs are but this, this is what look <laughs> And the singer, her name is Ros Sereisotea. And there's another singer on these compilations, Sinzi Smooth. There were Cambodian singers of this kind of pop rock music in the 60s and 70s. And when communist Maoists took over Phnom Penh on April 15th, 1975, they took a couple of hundred thousand people to the killing fields. And among them, Ros Sereisotea and Sinzi Smooth. And they forced them to work like cattle. In her case, probably worse than that. It's always worse for women, let's not forget. And then they disappeared. And we never saw them again. Cambodians lived a very different life. And several years later, when I, when I finally went to that country in the 90s, and I saw a lot of people without legs, um, there was still a big scar on this nation. So freedom shouldn't be taken for granted. Let's watch out for the tyrannies and what they do to other people and to us as well. And I want to close with a few words as well. Um, there's two things I want to say. Uh, well, first of all, let me answer uh, the question about past recordings. They'll still be available on Beams. Same page. Let me, pr let me put that in here. Hold on a sec. Let me get it uh here we go no here it is where it here it is hold on a sec um should they disappear because we don't have any control over what beams does and things happen right i mean the, the idea is to leave them up but should they disappear do not panic we have them all we will if they disappear reconstitute them so you have access again we have your email addresses we'll also um you know if we if we, you know, as we, if this show continues, 
we'll also build a new home for them. So they're not going away, including this one. Um, I do want to say a few last words as well. Um, there's two things I want to say. One is, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a lot of talk on Twitter, people saying, you know, people were really, frankly, blown away by Zelensky and his courage and his leadership. And there were a lot of people saying, oh, this guy should get the Nobel Prize. And my take on that was that he's as good as he is because he's a great leader of a great nation of brave people. And so I think it would have been um, short-sighted of Zelensky to win the Nobel Prize unless he won it with all of the people of Ukraine. Because you can't be a great leader if you don't have great people to lead. And the Ukrainians have proven themselves that they are people who are willing to fight to the death for what is right and for their freedom. And we don't have to rehash this. We all agree they're fighting for us too. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say, um, I want to read something from a blog post that was written on March 17th, 2014. As you may know, Russia formally incorporated Crimea on the next day, the 18th of March. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading because of the last line. Thomas, you may recognize this. So this is about Ukraine. The topic of the blog post was, oh, I don't have it here, but it was like a last look at, at Crimea. Okay, so this was written about Ukraine and Crimea the day before the formal annexation happened. Uh, it's a bit long, so bear with me. This is a big, and, and also, by the way, it's a bit long, bear with me, and I'm going to slaughter some Russian and Ukrainian names as well. Thomas, if you want to jump in and help me, I'd be grateful. This is a big country, a land blighted by grand requisitions of the 1930s, the brutal, the brutal war campaigns of the 1940s, Stalinist persecution in Western Ukraine, anti-nationalist campaigns conducted between 1961 and 73, and the rule of successive and mostly Russian-speaking or ethnically Tartar mafias since the, the independence. A nation that is painfully forging, at long last, its own core identity. It needs to cease functioning as a limit between Europe, Turkey, and Russia. A promotion of its distinct Ukrainian culture, including its political culture, will have to be fostered. The protection of linguistic, religious, and other minorities will come anyway, as it is the inevitable price for the cake that Europe would offer. One lesson is clear. Left in limbo, Ukraine will lurch from one crisis to another, unreformed because unable to afford the bitter pill of structural adjustments, emaciated by rent-seeking elites salivating at the prospect of an yet another round of lucrative energy deals hollowed by successive mafias aligned with various political groupings. There is little doubt that, here's my first Ukrainian slaughter of a name, there is little doubt that Jan, Yanukovych was, particularly, was a particularly skilled thug at this game and his electoral campaign created by puppet masters from Madison Avenue. Um, the name Paul Manafort comes to mind. I think he was involved in that was as convincing as it was ultimately successful. But a decade after the Orange Revolution, the country is still waiting for its first, this is the whole point of this. But a decade after the Orange Revolution, the country is still waiting for its first positive hero. Not a Bandera, 
Nada, help me out here, Thomas. Shukavevich, not even a Kleminsky or Maspa. Not a warrior, but a builder. And this is the last line and really the point of this. Let us hope she or he will emerge from this tragic chapter. So we know, a lot of people in the world don't know, but we know that the invasion of Russia in 2022 was really just an extension of this period in 2014. Hmm. And I would like to suggest that as this writer, who, by the way, was Thomas in 2014, did you realize that you wrote this as I was reading it? Yeah, hmm. I realize that even though Thomas said, let us hope she or he will emerge from this tragic chapter, he did, but it's many he's and many she's. It's not, you know, Zelensky could not be the hero that we see had he not been the right man at the right time with a perhaps Ronald Reagan-esque uh, history of appearing in front of a camera so he could continue to play the role of a hero. There's nothing in his past that would suggest he could do what he has done. But he also could not have done what he's done without not just the heroism of his own people. And that they, it's not just that he rallied them, but they were there to be rallied and they rose to the occasion when they were rallied. But I want to suggest that there's a whole other set of heroes here that need to be acknowledged. And that is you. That, that is you. That is Thomas. That is me. That is people all over the world who said, I will not stand for this and did whatever they could do, whatever they could do, a little thing, a big thing, just telling their friends to keep paying attention, sending a little bit of money, sending a lot of money, posting on social media, whatever it is you've done, you're one of the heroes that has emerged from this tragic chapter. And I want to make the point that as tragic as this invasion has been for the Ukrainian people and for people all over the world, you know, it's tragic for the Russian people. It's tragic for the Polish people. It's tragic for the Belarusians. It's, it's a horrible, tragic, man-made act of greed and power. But I think one of the takeaways I have from this event is I've learned so much about us the people and what we're willing to do for our to fight for our freedom and i'm so thankful that no one's bombing my house or my town which is happening not only in ukraine but in many places around the world where heroic people are standing up to it and i do not believe that when this is over and as the title of my book with ilya says after Ukraine has won and Russia has become a democracy, I don't believe that we're just going to go back to living the sheltered, comforted life lives that we had before in the West. I think we now know, or as my friend Agnieszka said to me once at her kitchen table while I was at her home in Warsaw, you know, someone who was, I, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Agnieszka, if you're here, but, you know, she said, I had always been opposed to guns, but suddenly I'm thinking maybe I was wrong. Maybe I and everyone else needs one to defend ourselves. I don't think we're ever going to go back to who we were before. I don't think we're ever going to shelter ourselves or hide our heads. 
I think we are going to, and I think it's a good thing, we are going to think there, but by the grace of God goes I. Could it happen in my country? I'm in the US. I have had my concerns about the state of democracy in my country. I look at other parts of Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and I have those concerns too. I hope you do too. I think we, the people of the world, are better because of this. It doesn't justify it. It certainly doesn't justify it. But I think we are heroes if we continue to fight in whatever way we can today and we don't stop fighting when this is over. But remember, the forces that made this happen have been going on all the time and sometimes we ignored it, often we ignored it, but it also will continue to happen in the future and that we must stay vigilant. So I wanna thank everybody for being here for these last seven or eight months or six months, however long it's been. Uh, I will continue with Ilya. You know, Thomas, I think, is planning on continuing because this is really his show. Uh, but I want to thank you all for being here. I want to, um, we'll stay in touch by email. And I hope that you see yourselves as part of the heroes that can make the world less fearful of tyranny going forward. And frankly, that fight's going to be a bitch. I'm up for it. I hope you are too. Thomas, anything you want to add? That's brilliant. Thank you. All right, so uh, thank you, Beams, for letting us be here. It's been a wonderful run. Um, I wish the Beams experiment had been more successful for them. I think we should acknowledge them as well. Uh, you know, they've devoted incredible resources and money and time to doing what they could. They're heroes, too, doing what they could to support Ukraine and fight Russia. So let's acknowledge them as well. And again, uh, Linda, I'm on Twitter at Greg Stebben, G-R-E-G-G-S-T-E-B-B-E-N. And Thomas, how do people follow you? Through you. <laughs> For a while, anyway. We are uh, kicking and screaming and dragging Thomas into the 21st century. So um, thank you all for being here. Uh, it has been great. Things will continue. I hope I will see you tomorrow with uh, Ilya. Let me put that uh, that thing here. And um, onward and upward. There's a war to be fought and a war to be won. So let's make sure we keep doing what we need to do and make sure we win. Uh, Anna says, Thomas, do you want to? Well, Anna, I will connect you with Thomas, and you guys can work this out uh, uh, offline via email or, or some other means. Uh, thank you, everybody, for being here. Thomas, any last words? Sounds great. All right. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Bye now. Yeah.